You are listening to First in Human, where we interview industry leaders and investors to learn about their journey to inhuman clinical trials. Presented by Vial, a tech-enabled CRO. Hosted by co-founder and CEO Simon Burns. With episodes launching weekly on Tuesdays and Thursdays. For episode 12, we catch up with Vijay Karwal, CFO of Affamed Therapeutics. Find out where there is still a preference for stories that are de-risked from the perspective of being closer to revenue and closer to market. Thank you for joining us on First in Human, Vijay. Hi, Simon. Pleasure to be here. I'm Simon, co-founder and CEO of Vial, and pleased to be here today with Vijay Karwal, CFO of Affamed Therapeutics. Vijay, tell us about your background. You've had a very expansive global career that's led you to now be CFO of Affamed. Take us through the journey. How did you get to where you are? Thank you. And you're right. I think I've been fortunate to have enjoyed a career that's perhaps more global than most. I'm originally from Europe. I'm a native of the Netherlands. I was educated there and in the United Kingdom. Started my career in investment banking in the United States. I spent the first half of my career there, principally in New York City. And early on in my career, started specializing in covering the healthcare industry as a banker. My background is in education, is in finance. I did not have any scientific background or background in medicine, but early on uh, had an opportunity to start working with the industry and really built a passion that has carried me through the rest of my career. I came to Asia about 14 years ago now, after having spent about a dozen years in the States and continued my journey in healthcare, in finance here. You'll find that many professionals who are in service industries, be they bankers, consultants, executive search or lawyers, many of them harbor a desire to move from an advisory into a principal position and really have an opportunity to take responsibility for driving and building a business. And I fall into that camp and had been looking for some time for opportunities to apply myself in that way. I had a first go at that a few years ago when I spent a couple of years in healthcare services, working with a well-known American company called DaVita, which is a kidney care company, helping them build their presence in Asia, but then came back to banking for a few years as head of healthcare in Asia for a global investment bank headquartered in Japan called Nomura. I was very intrigued by the emergence of what is truly a a global scale biotech ecosystem that has come out principally out of China. But there are important dynamics taking place in other markets in Japan, in Korea and Taiwan, increasingly in Singapore as well. And I felt that a period back in finance would be a great perch from which I'd be able to explore what was happening there and who the principal players were. And as part of that effort, I found myself being recruited, frankly, by one of my clients, which is Asia's largest dedicated healthcare investor called CBC Group. CBC stands for Seabridge Capital. And they invited me to join the firm and the fund as an operating partner. And in that capacity, I was appointed CFO of of Affamed Therapeutics, which I'm sure we'll speak about more momentarily. And I also support value creation and deal sourcing in the fund more broadly. But my principal responsibility is in helping build out Affamed. It's been an exciting 2022 from Affamed. What are you most proud of? And and give us a sense of what you're most excited about for 2023. Thank you. So first of all, by way of brief introduction, Affamed is a company that was incubated and built by CBC in partnership with a number of other leading healthcare investors in Asia. 
to serve as a platform to insource and develop innovation and differentiated therapeutics targeting two major disease areas, ophthalmology and CNS, or as we sometimes more colloquially say, diseases of the eye and the brain. We do that with the objective of ultimately building an integrated pharmaceutical company in China and Asia with capabilities from discovery to development, to commercialization. But we are also very conscious that being based in this part of the world comes with a number of potential strategic advantages in terms of the size of the talent pool, the cost of doing business here from a clinical development perspective, as Vial would be well aware. Uh, obviously, you have a, an addressable and a target patient pool that is unmatched in size. And all of that happening within an environment that is becoming increasingly integrated from a regulatory and business practice perspective with the rest of the world. So we are also very keen to leverage those benefits embedded from being here in being able to apply you know, our R&D capabilities to advance compounds in development for global markets markets as well, although we may not have an ambition to be fully integrated outside of Asia. Now, 2022 was arguably one of the most challenging years that the life sciences industry has faced in a very long time and probably among the most difficult years the industry has faced ever. The confluence of the pandemic, the impact on the financial markets and the access to funding all create a very challenging environment. But within that, we've been very happy that we've been able to continue to advance our business in a number of important capacities. I think the three principal areas are We've been able to continue and advance a number of studies that we had already initiated. Uh, we've continued filing new regulatory submissions and initiated new trials. And we've also made some, some good start in initiating our commercial activities in a number of the markets in Asia as well. So we're steadily progressing, albeit in a tough environment. We think of our business around three principal value drivers. The first one are a number of near-term opportunities in neurology in terms of close to market. One achievement that I'd highlight there is our advancements in developing digital therapeutics. And among others, we are initiating, as we speak, what will essentially serve as a proof of concept trial for a first treatment for patients who suffer from cognitive impairment after stroke, which is an impairment that currently has no solution for that. And we have identified a digital interaction, uh, evidence-based, as a potentially very useful way of addressing such impairments. The second value driver we are focusing on in our business is really an integrated package of solutions for cataract surgery in our ophthalmology business. Cataract is a very significant unmet need in China. Compared to OECD averages, China only performs about one-sixth of the surgeries that you might see in developed markets. And that will lead for some time to come to very significant double-digit growth. We may see as many as 10 million cataract surgeries a year by the end of this decade. And we have a suite of both pharmaceutical and device interventions to treat that. In devices, we have what we think are some of the most advanced and efficacious lens implants for use in surgery. And then we also have a drug that is used to optimize post-surgical care by minimizing the risk of inflammation and pain for patients after surgery. 
For both of these programs, we anticipate starting registrational trials or bridging trials, really, as they are more better described in China next year. And we have initiated during this past year already real-world evidence studies in both of these. And then our third principal value driver is what we call innovation in retinal disease, where we have two priority programs. One is a next-generation anti-VEGF for the treatment of neovascular age-related macular degeneration and other retinal diseases. And we also are hoping to, and that's a program for which we are currently uh, in a phase one study, albeit one that's designed to hopefully generate some efficacy signal as well in the United States. That's our first U.S. trial, which we initiated during this past year. And we are looking to initiate or participate with our partner in a global phase three trial for a program that is a molecule that promises to be potentially the first compound to deliver improvement in vision for patients suffering from intermediate dry AMD. We're very excited about that opportunity as well. It's a disease area that is attracting significant attention in the market right now. And we look forward to participating in that as well. So those are some highlights on the development side. And as I mentioned, we have initiated commercial operations in some of the greater China markets, meaning Hong Kong, Macau, Taiwan. We are preparing to enter Singapore and Southeast Asia. We anticipate potentially being able to launch our first product through our own commercial organization in our largest target market, which is mainland China, possibly as early as the end of this coming year. So all of that paints a picture of activity and advancement that we've been very pleased to be able to sustain in this difficult environment. Congratulations again on uh, AM172's uh, first patient in. It's very exciting. Let's transition and talk about financing. You came from a, a banking background. You think a lot about markets. We'd love to maybe first get a sense of your Series B, 170 million lessons learned for early stage biotech founders, and then also a commentary on the market today. If you're fast forwarding that fundraising to today, what advice would you have for biotech founders in the more difficult climate we're in now? If we look back at our Series B, I'd love to say that it was all done with the benefit of foresight, but the reality is that we have found ourselves being fortunate by doing what was a large raise. We raised $173 million in our Series B, which was one of the largest fundraisings, certainly in China and possibly globally among biotechs during last year. That quantum of funding was more significant in retrospect than we might have appreciated at the time, given that the funding window effectively closed or was significantly limited not too long thereafter. We closed this round in the second quarter of 2021, literally on the cusp of when the downturn in the market really started taking effect. That provided us with some three years of cash runway, at least based on our business plan at, at that time. And that, of course, puts us in a relatively comfortable position relative to many of our peers, and we're very conscious of that. Having said that, when looking at the market today, I think, unfortunately, the reality is, is that one has to factor in the probability that this environment may continue for some time to come. And I think particularly for later stage companies that are relatively close to IPO, the appetite among investors to take new risk is more limited. Valuation tends to be a bit higher. There tends to be a greater reliance on an identifiable IPO event as a benchmark against which to set valuation. So I think for companies like ours, and to the extent that I could still take the liberty to suggest or advise peers, is that I, th I think it's important to find ways, obviously, of extending the existing runway as long as you can. In practice, that means we have to prioritize 
companies today are realizing that they cannot do perhaps everything and develop everything that they have in their portfolio at full speed. You have to be conscious that perhaps you should not be doing everything alone anymore. I think clearly the benefit of partnering, perhaps outlicensing, maybe earlier than it was initially planned or anticipated, outweighs the financial risk of burning cash too quickly. And of course, we are in an environment where inflation is driving up interest rates, is driving up cost of capital. And it really results in a fundamental reset of risk and return in the eyes of investors. What that means is that you not only need to adjust your business plan to provide perhaps a better risk profile, fewer programs, perhaps focus more on later stage programs, but it also means that in order to provide a better return outlook, you need to be conscious of valuation. You need to be conscious, perhaps, of structural features and how you put your deal together to offer more protection to investors. Convertible structures obviously are seeing a lot more use, the use of warrants to provide upside at a future date, but still managing, uh, you know, valuation at the entry point. All of these instruments become important. I will say that there are still important geographical differences. I think the nature of the investment environment that I face here being based in Hong Kong and Asia is distinct from what might be taking place in North America or Europe. I think certainly in the US and Europe, the focus still continues to be more on truly breakthrough innovation and a continued appetite for early stage, but genuinely different uh, and innovative. I think in Asia, maybe also because the level of scientific experience among the investor community is not as deep, there is still a preference for stories that are de-risked from the perspective of being closer to revenue and closer to market, thereby have an ability to hopefully just generate the internal cash flow to reduce the independence on external funding. So there are some different dynamics there, but it's a complicated environment. And I think we all need to prepare but the fact that it may go on for another one to two years. I think it's a good point to segue to talking about the Chinese biotech community. You're, you're close, you see it hands on. Where do you think it ships over the next five years? The last five years we've seen now a host of truly global Chinese biotech companies take clinical programs forward in a way that previously they'd be more focused on the domestic market. Where do you think that takes us in five years' time? So I think if you take a step back, and I feel fortunate that I got involved in deal making in Asian healthcare and Chinese healthcare a long time ago. It's been almost 14 years now. So I've seen this evolution from an industry that frankly used to be completely domestic in its orientation and frankly, largely generic into what is now on a path to, I think, becoming a force in global innovation. What is interesting was that there was a long time where people thought that China was actually going to go the way of India and leverage the ability to quickly re-engineer and file generic copies of innovative drugs and become a part of the global supply chain in that regard. What's been fascinating, and there's a variety of reasons for that, including a fantastic human talent pool often trained and with professional experience developed in the United States, but that saw an opportunity to come back home and build real innovation. And I think even the innovative paths started perhaps with a little bit of, of a me too and a me better attitude. Many people will share anecdotes about how there are 60, 70 plus PD1s or PDL1s in clinical development in China, and clearly not each of them addresses a particular unmet need anymore. There is now a very clear 
awareness that the next step in this evolution has to be to develop truly unique and innovative global IP, similar to other parts of the world. There's tremendous interest in gene and cell therapy and other innovative approaches. So many people have observed that from a number of patent filings in China is now second only to the US. So I think it is logical to assume that this path ultimately will lead over time to the emergence of truly global biotechs out of China. I don't think you'll necessarily see the next Pfizer or J&J or Lilly coming out of China in terms of building truly globally and marketing oriented platforms. But look, could a next big biotech ultimately emerge out of China operating in a truly global basis and on truly global standards? Because many people will always continue to raise question marks about IP protection and other compliance aspects. And I think that is something that Chinese business leaders are keenly aware of and absolutely want to build world-class organizations in that regard. So I do believe that is a path that we will continue to see develop. And last question for you, Vijay, we think a lot about clinical trials here at File. Of course, we think a lot about the application of technology in clinical trials. Where do you see room for clinical trials having a big impact in terms of driving down inefficiencies? Companies like Vial and building tech-enabled solutions in clinical trials offer, I think, a particularly interesting opportunity for China to address gaps or obstacles on a path to building a clinical trial capability and capacity in the country that's well-matched not only to the amount of R&D work that's going on, but also, frankly, helps the industry generate data that is truly usable and applicable for an industry that aspires to be on that global path we just spoke about. Aspects of data management, uh, integrity, tracking, traceability. China is shifting to an e-filing process where the large stacks of paper that we used to generate are luckily disappearing. So all of that demands tech-enabled solutions to be able to achieve all of these aspects at a greater speed, greater cost, greater quality, make it more scalable in the process. Look, I, I will, you know, almost as a competitive warning to you, look, do not underestimate the resourcefulness and the dynamism that exists among entrepreneurs in China itself. And uh, clearly there is tremendous interest in the country in building solutions in that regard. So it we've spoken about China as a source of R&D and innovation. But when we look at the ecosystem that supports pharmaceutical and therapeutic development from a service perspective, it's not inconceivable. We've seen the emergence of companies like Wuxi Aptech on, on the CMO and CDMO side, that when it comes to clinical trial management and development, obviously there's a number of well-known CROs coming out of China as well. Look at the tiger meds of this world. So this is an area too, where you will see China evolving, not just in the actual therapeutic innovation itself, but in the whole ecosystem that supports R&D as well. Great. Well, with that, thank you for joining us on First and Human. My great pleasure. Thanks so much. Thanks for listening. Be sure to follow us on Apple, Spotify, Google, and YouTube.